Hello and welcome back to Perspectives. Today's guest is the Mindful Mover. Philip, along with his wife Martina, run online coaching on how to get around arguably the biggest obstacle when it comes to training. Time. Time, or lack thereof, is a common reason why people don't train. Balancing work life with home life, along with the responsibilities each of those brings, daily life is filled with activities that leave little room for much else. But what if there was a way to improve your fitness without spending catalogs hours in the gym? In this episode, Phil talks me through why multiple training sessions throughout the week may not be the most effective strategy, how you can get strong with only six main movements, why more isn't always better, how to get started in as little as one session per week, and much more. I've been following the Mindful Mover for a number of years and experienced some benefit from this style of training myself. And if you are someone who finds it difficult to commit time to multiple gym sessions a week, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, The Mindful Mover. So Philip Chubb, it's really, really good to have you on the podcast. Uh, I have been following you for a number of years and I really, really like your approach to training as I think it addresses uh, perhaps the most um, prominent reason as to why people don't train and that is, you know, the element of time. So for the the listeners who are not really familiar with, with your work, how would you describe what you do? I would describe it as just like you said, uh, the number one limiting factor for many people being time. We try to find out how we can get around that by helping people to train in limited amounts of time, but still making a lot of gains for the time they spend training. So small time investment for big gains. That's our whole idea. Okay. And in what sort of area of fitness would you say you fall under? Because I know there's different, there's loads of different areas of sort of fitness. And when you talk about gains there, what, what specifically are you referring to? So we tend to use a, a mixture of calisthenics for the upper body, working towards things like planche push-ups, handstand push-ups, one-arm chin-ups, front lever rows, because we find that those are the best strength gains, um, or that's the best tool for upper body strength gains. When you make gains on those movements, you find that all the other movements out there, like maybe your bench press, overhead press, all those other things, will be increasing in the background. So it kind of fits our whole model of small time investment for a lot of gains. On the other hand, for the lower body, we find that weight training tends to be more effective, especially in the long term. So for the lower body, we use things like weighted squats, um, split squats, things with barbells, etc. Okay, so so not traditional sort of bodybuilding bro splits as we as we like to call them, but um, a slightly slightly different and a slightly unique take on it. So can you talk me through your your fitness journey and, and sort of how you arrived at this sort of um, this idea and this sort of style of training? Absolutely. So when I first uh, got into training, it was about middle school. Um, so I you know kind of read a book. And it talked about how to exercise for improving one's health and everything, right? 
And so my my workout was kind of just something like uh, I'll do a few push ups and like you know 100 sit ups every day, and that's where it started off. Uh, but over time, I started learning more and more and more. Um, I got into break dancing at one point with some of my friends, and one of them told me, "Hey, you know, man, you would be great at planches. We should look that up." So I looked up what a planche was, and from there, I got involved in gymnastic based strength training as well as a group called The Movement Culture. So when I learned about that kind of uh, gymnastic-based training and the movement-type training, well, that, like, piqued my interest. So from there, I started training a lot. And that was a, that was a funny phase in my life. At one point, I was training, like, six days a week with an active rest on the seventh day, <laughs> twice a day, uh, four hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, some of those days were like eight to ten hours, not just strength training, but like yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did that for most of my like late teens and my twenties, um, and that was sustainable, obviously, for long term. Um, but that's where I where I started and when I went for a while. Later, basically, when I realized that that wasn't going to be sustainable, <laughs> I started trying to figure out okay, how can we go the opposite route? How can we make it so that actually we can train and gain without spending all day in the gym. And how can we make it so that everyone can do this? Because, you know, a lot of people don't have eight to 10 hours of data to train. So that's where kind of the path went there. Okay. Um, I learned of a new concept the other day called uh, allostatic load. And I like buzzwords. So I want to throw that in there to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, so when you talk about you were training sort of eight to 10 hours per day for sort of six days a week and then with an active rest day you you, um you sort of had in air quotations there because uh it doesn't sound like it was too uh, too restful Uh, do you you find you were like suffering from burnout quite a lot what was the impact of of training for that sort of amount of time and the the volume you were doing yeah you know i i definitely had some issues there that in hindsight i can see were from training so much like for example one thing i had was constant overuse injuries you know wrists were hurt knees were hurt and it was funny because during that time i was doing all of these prehab and injury prevention exercises and i was basically like i'm gonna be indestructible nothing will hurt me except for some reason i'm always injured (laughs) but i would always rationalize it well i would be more injured if i wasn't training (laughs) <laughs> and that was the thing so on the physical side i had those problems and on the like the more internal the health side i i was noticing you know i would have trouble sleeping i had like insomnia i'd be awake for hours per night and i never really thought about that being like correlated possibly with my training it was always like those things were just uh something like no a side thing but uh later actually ended up realizing like oh that was that outstatic load that you said was a bit too heavy to carry the whole time yeah so just to just to sort of touch base on that what that is and the allostatic load i believe someone t- uh, explained to me the other day is the kind of threshold at which you can kind of uh take stress in terms of be that the physiological stress in the body through training or work-related stress or something you know, all the different stressing factors in your life. And I believe that allostatic load refers to that threshold where once you go above it, you kind of suffer that burnout phase and things like that. In in terms of your sessions then, 
so you were saying you were, you were training for that amount of time. I learned about the sort of RPE scale as well, or the rate of a perceived exertion from uh, Michelle van der Venter, who was a triathlete we had on a, a few episodes ago. Uh, and she was saying that's not really something you can measure. But in terms of the intensity of these workouts, where would they sit on that RPE level? Do you think they were, you know, were they really, really intense sessions? Or do you think they were just kind of like eight to 10 hours of, yeah, I was doing quite a lot of movement. Maybe there was some high, you know, high intensity in there, or was it all just like full on super hard training? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, that the part of that training each day at one point was like twice a day of strength training. So that was high intensity. I wouldn't say it's, I know a 10 out of 10, if I had to rate it, it'd be like, no, maybe seven, eight, that kind of area. Um, so it was intense enough to, to be something that I needed to recover from for sure. But surrounding those times were also other points with movement. And those would often be somewhat lighter, but you know, it still kind of ends up adding up, especially depending on the movement. So when we were, you know, just doing some flow work on the ground, it might stay pretty light. That's fine. But then when we're doing tumbling into grass and doing like hard landings and everything, even though it's movement, those impacts, they still hurt. They add up. Good, goodbye. So. Goodbye. Kneecaps. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. The knees, ankles. Oh my goodness. Like you, when one bad landing oh, out, you know? So it, it was definitely the train train part would be like, you know, seven, eight and the movement part maybe could have been like anywhere down from like, no three or four, um, maybe as low as two, but it could go higher too, depending on what movement we were doing. So it was a lot. But that's okay though, because you did like four hours of prehab work, and, and that's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just totally made everything fine as long as it's four hours of prehab. Okay, <laughs> I first heard about the the movement culture through uh, Edo Portal, so uh, quite a prominent figure. So if anyone hasn't heard of him, the the movement culture, uh, it's probably better to let you explain what the movement culture is in your own words, really, rather than than let me uh, let me define it. But yeah, what, what would you say the movement culture is to you? So when I first started, um, you know, getting involved in it, it was kind of like they were they were really into checking out different forms of human movement. So you know they'd be doing the gymnastics, they'd be doing the go dance work, they'd be doing the hand balancing, and it was just all about finding different movements and exploring all of them, which I really really liked. Um, it was also um, a lot. There was a big element of like, you know strength training involved in it. So like, you know, the coaching there would involve a lot of uh, working out, getting stronger gymnastic-based stuff for the upper body, um, weights for the lower body. So it kind of was a good inspiration in terms of, like, how we ended up developing our own methodology. Uh, but it was a lot of training at that time. Like, anyone who's been in it knows it's, like, it's a... They turn into a lifestyle. It's a, it's a lot of work, and it was not something that I found to be a long-term sustainable thing uh, because of just how much volume went into all of that training. It, it was a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can understand. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned about that Edo portal, and I, I first saw the, um, there was a YouTube channel, I think it was called like The Art of Strength or something. It was, I think it was a calisthenics channel, all these guys in the States just doing some some pretty impressive stuff. And they did like this really, really nice and well-put-together um you know, the editing on it was really cool of, of Edo Portal doing these handstands and these like animal flows and it just looked super cool. So I I got quite interested in it. Um, I wouldn't say I was 
particularly involved in it, but I, you know, was an impressionable teenager at that stage and, you know, took away like, yeah, you know, I always like to do something a little bit different. So I started training and, you know, taking some elements of that training away as well as doing, you know, hanging work. And uh, when I went to uni, actually, I did some hand balancing and uh, that's been, that's served me well, actually. That's always a good party trick to whip out is that is <laughs> the hands, the hand standing stuff. Um, so, you know, I saw he's, he did a bit of work with Conor McGregor as well at one point. So perhaps that's kind of um, after that point, it seemed to really grow the this whole idea of, of movement and getting, you know, a, a wider platform for people to, to understand what it was. You know, there was videos of Conor doing some, um, you know, balancing like tennis balls on his head or like punching these tennis balls against the wall and walking along rails and things like that. And it, yeah, it did look... Uh, you know, and I, you know, obviously, if Conor McGregor was doing it, then it must be good. For <laughs> yeah, you. Do it, right? <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's such a funny thing in sports. You know, we, I, I, I talked about that because I, I used to, um, you know, be involved in a lot of these different like, sports and everything. And you talk to people, and it's just like whatever the top person is doing, that's the best thing to do. <laughs> it's so funny how like sometimes we might forget that they just are successful because they're the best. You know, <laughs> so you, you try to tell me that if I don't like punch a tennis ball against the wall 5,000 times a day, you're telling me I'm not going to win the UFC. Uh, <laughs> like, well, that's, that's the only thing to do. If you just do the 4,000, but if you can't, 4,000 will not be enough. It has to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's never enough. So just go back to that point. Then I, I see that obviously off the back of, you know, that sort of influence and things like that. I did see a real emergence of things like these uh, animal style walks and floats. You saw the like the elephant walks, and uh, if anyone who doesn't know what they are, it's probably better to to uh, to Google what they look like rather than uh, try and explain it on a on a podcast. But there was the the lizard flows, there was the animal walks and crab walk and whatever different walk you can think of. There was that was probably involved at some point. Do you do you think there's any merit in using any of those in your training at all, or do you think it's just more of a it's just quite good and quite fun to do uh, as a as a method of training, if you like? Yeah, I I think you know if you enjoy that sort of thing, there's then I, I tell people there's nothing wrong with it. Like if it's if it's just for the sake of you enjoy it, you're having fun, it's a good workout. There's nothing wrong with that. the The question I think that um sometimes can come up is things like no. Are these things needed? Sometimes things go from, I enjoy this kind of workout and it's fun. Then you start reading that article where it talks about, this is the thing that we're missing in fitness. And if you don't have it, then you're missing something. So that when it gets to that point, now we're talking about a whole different thing. Before, it was enjoyable. Now it's like something that we have to do or we're somehow deficient. I, I don't really subscribe to that belief or that thought at all. If you like doing like the flows and everything, no problem, enjoy it. But if you don't ever flow on the ground in that way, I think plenty of people have somehow, I don't know how, but they've made it through life without flowing on the ground like that and been totally fine, at least mostly fine, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think the idea of fun actually is really overlooked in training. I, I think often times people think that training has to be this super super serious endeavor every time you go in the gym you have to put that you know that sigma male music on and, and you know, 
um, those those heavy beats or that heavy metal and just you know go at it really hard. But you know, I I think there's loads of elements of training that can be you can get loads of benefits from just having a bit of fun you know climb a tree in the garden when was the last time most of us adults actually climbed a tree without people frowning at us and wondering what we're doing but you know these things like these flows and and hand balancing and you know everything like that you don't see much of it incorporated into into training and i think you know i think training should be a bit of fun as well what's your what's your thoughts I, I fully agree. I think if it's not a fun thing, if you just are doing it for the sake of like being strict and I had to do this at this time, this way, every single time for the rest of your life, it's going to be just absolutely miserable. And that's if you continue it in the first place. We we have to find joy and know what our bodies can do for it to be a long-term thing, I think. Um, you see so sometimes the sports athletes, they're able to do it for the sake of work but then as soon as they're you know, done their sport, they'll, they'll leave it and they'll never pick it back up again. If you ask them about it, they'll be like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to touch that, you know? So I think I agree with you. I think it has to be some element of fun to make it enjoyable. Why would we want to work out for the rest of our lives and just hate it the entire time? That's a lot of time spent training that you don't, that we don't like. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think there's this idea of subscribing to perfect form and everything all the time as well. And, you know, in my opinion, I don't think, you know, I'm by no means an expert. I'm literally just an amateur who enjoys training and, you know, pushing my body in different ways. And, you know, I'm by no means the fittest or the strongest, but it's, I, I quite enjoy exploring different, different things and seeing, um, seeing all the fun and, and what I can make my body do. But there's another coach I sort of follow quite closely and he, he does a lot of sort of, uh, carries and things like that, that are, not even so he'll carry you know 20 kilos in one hand and 60 in another or something like that because he's of the idea of the sort of opinion that you don't do everything with a perfect form all the time if you're reaching up to grab something off a top shelf you're not going to be you're not going to be setting yourself and you know protracting your scapula to make sure you've got the perfect base to be able to do it and the same with like picking stuff off the floor it's always a bit of a laughing uh, an ongoing joke when you get to these sort of uh, corporate jobs when they give you health training videos of of how to pick up a box and things like that and you're like oh yeah bend down and keep your back straight and make sure you're lifting with your knees and things like that but the reality is that people don't really do that all the time no matter how careful you can be there are going to be times where you put your body in a, in a position where it's not going to be perfect and you know what 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 do you think about that sort of thing and about having, obviously your your sort of training style seems to be having a, a carryover to different areas of life and things like that. When it, when it comes to form, I, I kind of have maybe like a, two main thoughts. One is that um, we actually say that form can be a form of progressive overload. So, you know, today, you know, if you are trying to do uh, a planche, you know, and of course we can look it up, but it's basically a push-up position with your feet in the air. Um, now, if your hips are a little bit too low on the planche, or they're a little bit too high on your planche, well, you don't have to say, okay, I can't do a planche of perfect form, so I need to go back and do something else. You can use that planche there and say, all right, you know what? My form today is a little bit not perfect, but next workout, let's see if my form improves. And if the form improves, then congratulations, you progressively overloaded. You got stronger. So 
we try to help people see that forum can be a way to improve. Now, of course, the disclaimer is that there are certain forums that are just like, you know, not good at all. Like if you're doing a plant and the arms are supposed to be locked for the plant, but your arms are bent, then now you're going to have a problem. So that is something to like go back and correct. But if the hips are too high or the hips are too low, the shoulders aren't perfectly protracted, you know, or set properly, it's okay. They can over time improve. Uh, now, the second point I would say is that sometimes people can um, easily get caught up so much in the form that they forget what they're actually exercising for in the first place. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. You might see this happen a lot with like weightlifters. And I think our weightlifting, I should say, um, like snatch, clean, and power clean, power snatch, and sprinting, for example. You know, the person at the Olympics, they have to keep that bar, you know, that one extra millimeter closer or further away during their snatch or clean and jerk, because that's the difference between them winning gold medal and getting to feed their families for that, you know, that Olympic cycle, or getting silver and just being cast off. Uh, or in sprinting, you know, the perfect arm swing, that is important because that's the difference between, like, half a second more and half a second less and being, you know, Usain Bolt or the person who came after Usain Bolt who, you know, we're not, I'm not sure who that is, but you get the idea. Uh, and, but that's not the same thing that we need to do for, uh, as actual trainees. Like when I go out to sprint, I'm just doing some hard gains and some cardio. <laughs> so if my team, I've seen your sprinting videos. So. <laughs> I talk about it all the time. I'm like, my sprint form is, is total hot garbage. You know, it's, it's not, it's not good at all. But, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter, does it? It's, no, I'm, yeah. I'm not ever going to get to race the same bolt, and at least not seriously, not for a gold medal. And uh, on the day that I do, that's when I'll hire a coach to help me with my sprint form. But until that day, it's just like I don't care, you know. Yeah, yeah. I heard a good uh, good quote about per like perfectionism and things like this as well, which I think obviously perfect form. Uh, I think it was, it was Chris Williamson. He does a he does a quite a well known podcast now, and he said. He said that perfectionism is procrastination masquerading as quality control. <laughs> I think was that's pretty nail on the head there in terms of if I don't have the the perfect form, then I'm like, oh well, do I really do I really do it? Or now I'm obviously not good enough to do it, so why bother at all, sort of thing. I love that. I love that. It's just like oh, it's just almost like another excuse to like go back and focus on anything but the actual movement. <laughs> Uh, that's a wonderful quote. I like that. It is. Mm -hmm. It is good. So, so talk to me about um, considering what you've learned. You've coined this term of the big five in terms of uh, exercise and things like that. Can you tell us your sort of philosophy around the big five, and also talk to us a bit about the sort of accommodating resistance element as well? Absolutely. So, um, our big five. I said actually, no, funny, funny place to announce it, but it's actually kind of our big six now. We added the um, Nordic leg curl, but it's uh, six movements now that we find give a lot of carryover to everything else. So those movements are the planche push-up, the handstand push-up, the one-arm chin-up, the front lever row, the squat, and the leg curl, Nordic leg curl. Right. And we find that if you work on those six movements, and you know, people oftentimes say, like, oh, well, I can't do a planche push-up yet. There's progressions for each of them, so you know, the progressions towards them and those six movements. 
then you find that you make gains on all the other movements. So, for example, weighted dips were not on that list. But if someone is working and progressing on that big six movement, then they will find that their weighted dips will likely go up in the background for free. Same thing with like maybe the overhead press. You may not be doing overhead press, but it goes up for free. Same thing with the bench press or you no know, weighted chin-ups. And the whole idea with these movements is if you work on these six movements, you're gaining in everything else without having to actually train everything else. So that's kind of the whole idea. Bang for your buck, effectively. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I've had a I've had a bit of first hand experience at trying some of these. Uh, it was a few years ago now, and I've, I've actually just started training in this way again because I I wanted to get some strength back, and and I enjoyed it when I did it last time. So my experience was uh, the one arm chin working towards a one arm chin up, and I tested a uh, weighted pull up, and I found that the jump in so without training weighted pull-ups directly i was only working on one arm chin-up work and i found my weighted chin-up i can't remember what the exact figure was at the time but i think it went up from like 30 odd kilos or 30 kilos up to when i retested it after let's say three months maybe six months mm-hmm. it went up to about i think i pb'd at 45 maybe 50 kilos yes yes uh-huh and i wasn't training any weighted chin-ups already it was only the one-arm chin-up work and that was my aha moment when i saw i was like actually there is some there is some uh there is some method in the madness <laughs> there absolutely is it's like you know it's uh it's not just stuff we're making up it actually like you said it works you you didn't have to do the weighted chin-up you just did the the one-arm chin-up progression work and then you find your weighted chin-up is going up in the background for free well that's great because now if you were thinking about having a weighted chin-up progression day you know a way to chin up day in your program or anything you don't have to work on that exercise you can work on the one arm chin up progressions and you can rest easy and sleep easily at night knowing that your weighted chin up is going up for free in the background that's the whole idea yeah brilliant and in terms of uh in terms of i believe this is related to strength where where do you see hypertrophy so muscle growth uh, in comparison to what we're trying to achieve here do you think it's solely reserved for just strength increases and in that case would we have to supplement the training with some accessory work for example or do you think this carryover extends to to muscle growth or hypertrophy as well yeah i think it, i think it definitely can transfer over to hypertrophy like i don't think anyone's going to go from doing like you know push-ups rows and like normal pull-ups to doing then later planche push-ups handstand push-ups uh, one-arm chin-ups front levers and increasing their squat and everything and not get bigger this is this is not going to happen our bodies are going to adapt now what we tend to tell people is okay keep working keep working and keep gaining and as you're gaining see are you getting bigger or are there any areas that are lagging behind now if they start to find oh hey i want this area like you know maybe my neck or my abs i want them to kind of come out a little bit more okay now after we've done this base work here, we can house in a little bit of isolation at the end if we needed to work on those specific areas. But like we do it after we've tested to see if the the base stuff will work. It's kind of like, what's the point of starting off with all these extra you know, toppings on, on the training when maybe just the base would have worked? And then later, if we need the extra toppings, 
because we have to find out that they're needed, then we can add them in. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So it's almost like you're you're getting your foundations work done with these uh, the big six as you call them now, uh, and anything else you want to add on top of that. So if you want um, bigger arms, you can do your 100 sets of curls by every week. <laughs> if you want a bigger chest, you can you can do whatever exercise you want to do to be able to do that uh, as well. So in your in your quest for finding the the minimal effective dose as you as you call it or the the sort of most bang for your buck movement what what are your strat what have your strategies been for you know being able to test and prove the effectiveness of each of these methods oh that, that, that's fun so like for finding out which exercises have carryover right what we basically have to do we limit what we're doing so we just do like six that big six right um and this is where sometimes it calls for a little bit of um it can be a little scary at first, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm not doing this other exercise or that one. I've never not done the exercise before. So we would have, we would um practice those exercises only, just the big six. And then we test the other exercises and see every now and then, are they going up? So maybe what I would do is I would start off doing a movement. Like, I don't know, I'll test the deadlift. I'll see my max in the deadlift. And then... I'll write that down, and then now from then on, for the next 6, 8, 12 weeks, whatever time period I set, no more deadlifting. No deadlifting at all, just the big 6. Then at the end of it, I retest the deadlift. Did the deadlift go up? If it did, great, we found out, ah, the big 6 transfers over to this movement. And if it didn't, then we find out, okay, maybe the big 6 doesn't transfer over to that movement. When we did that, we found that just nearly every movement we could think of would go up. So for the sake of exercises, we found that's the way we test to see how much we need to um, do in terms of exercises to make gains with everything. In terms of the volume, this is another scary one. What you can do, what we do, we just keep bringing the amount of uh, work that we do down. So it's like, okay, maybe the first week we try five sets. Then next week we see... Do we make gains of five sets? Great. Let's get scary now. Let's drop down to four sets. Uh, now, after four sets, the next week, do we make gains? Great. Let's try dropping into three. And from there, we keep playing around until we find the amount of work that actually needs to get done to make gains. It's kind of scary, but it's really fun. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds. It sounds like you've put in a lot of lot of time, and I think it's good that we have access to this information at this point, so we don't have to. You know, because who's got this? At least now I have a I have an excuse for my chicken legs, and that I can. I'm just testing my upper body uh, big six at the moment, and I'm not working on it. Not blaming genetics or anything like that. Uh, I love it. <laughs> so the time frames in which you're doing this as well. Let's say you're testing your deadlift as you as you mentioned before, and you said you're reducing these sets, uh, you know, on a periodic basis. What sort of time frame are you are you do you generally go for when you're testing something in particular we, we try to do at least at least six weeks because like you know if you do too often like it if you were to do somebody some people might try to do it like well once a week or once every other week but we've had people we've seen people literally gain on movements training like once every two weeks that's still enough time to, to gain sometimes as long as you're training hard and you're working near that peak point so we try to push it to run at least six and sometimes longer. 
that we can really get to see, like, did this movement increase without direct work or does it stay the same or does it drop? Uh, otherwise, too soon, you're basically at that point training the movement, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I've seen you've done some stuff on sort of the cardiovascular stuff as well. So not just the big six, but you've been looking at how you can apply this method to getting the most out of uh your cardio improving your cardiovascular side of things with the least amount of time possible is that a fair assessment yeah yeah we've done the same thing with that i used to do something called a sprint drop set which is pretty much the most miserable thing one can ever do to themselves <laughs> you know first the first thing you want to do to try it out is you have to determine how much you hate yourself and if you if you really do hate yourself then this is going to be perfect for you so first determine that that then you go find maybe like a big hill or a big strip of grass. That's just it's something soft. It's better to do on a soft surface, a track, whatever. And you break out into a full sprint. And then as you're sprinting, you're going to start fatiguing. So your sprint will drop down to a run. The run will drop down to a jog. The jog will probably drop down to like a walk, maybe a crawl. Then you'll fall on the ground. You'll die. You'll cry. And then you'll, uh, you'll rest no, and then you might do it again, one, two, maybe three sets, but most people aren't going to get past probably two of those. And then you don't do that again for like another seven days, eight days, and you're, you do it again, you're good to go. I, I did that for some time, and I found that my gains kept increasing for quite some time before it kind of leveled off, which is uh, what a lot of people find with cardio anyway, you know, especially for those like, you know, long, those uh, sprint, longer sprint times. It works for about, you know, Two, I mean, uh, two months, eight weeks, and then at that point, it starts to kind of level off a little bit. So we found that was really effective for getting to that point without having to spend a lot of time doing it. So, in terms of what you were measuring there, was it? Did you have a like a stopwatch on how long you could go for, or was it distance or as you excreted from the body and how much you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's like how long we go before before we just like fall on the ground and die and cry. <laughs> how much crying we did. Was there any sweat left to cry with, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, we mentioned, like, distance, speed, and um, endurance and everything. And I found that after about, like, uh, eight weeks, that's when it started to level off and it was, wasn't improving anymore. But for that small time investment, which was barely anything at all, I was really happy with the gains it made with, with eight weeks of training. Yeah, that that is really, really interesting, actually. I had a, just going back to the uh, the triathlete, so she does Ironman, so obviously very long, very, very long distance endurance events, and we were talking about uh, how to split sessions and things like that, and something will come on in, in, you know, come on to in a sec, but the, there's this idea of when she does the hard sessions, she says she does easy sessions as well, and she says you need to make the easy sessions they need to be easy like they need to be really relaxed uh, before in order to be able to go really hard on the other session so it sounds it sounds like it's got a bit of transfer to what you're doing here as well so you're going the hard sessions are very very hard in that you're pushing yourself to the absolute limit and you know consuming many 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 boxes of tissues with how many how much you're crying at the end of the sprint sessions but you're also, you said you're testing it every seven days. So that rest period is really, really long. And you're making sure you're doing, you know, what, what do you sort of do on those days in between? I think you've seen, I've seen you do like walks, long walks and things like that as well. We, we typically go for walks. And, and like you said, um, like your um, other uh, 
a podcast person came on. The the low intensity stuff is very low intensity. So we go for walks and we go. I call it urban hiking. <laughs> we just go up hills in the neighborhood. So it's like it's low intensity. It's not really hard work. Well, it's just for circadian rhythm. It's for recovery. It helps you get outside. It helps you sleep better that night. And we do those on the off days. So we have the really really hard workouts and the really really soft relaxing walks um, up the hills and everything. And we stay out that middle zone where it's like you know kind of fatiguing, but not so strong that it goes into that little hard day. Yeah. Okay. You, you mentioned uh, circadian rhythms that there. So how does that incorporate into your your sort of training your exercise regime? Oh man, that that was huge. So uh, you know, I have an autoimmune condition called ulcerative colitis. So I, I got really into um, health basically because I wanted to help improve my um, my uh, my autoimmune condition. So one of the things I, I was learning about was circadian rhythms and how those help with health and recovery. And what we were basically finding out was that uh, things like light, exercise, food timing, temperature, and socializing, those can have a big effect on one's health. So, like, for example, if you can get outside every morning um, and get some sunlight on as much of your skin as uh, legally and morally possible. Yeah. <laughs> don't go walk around naked. Yeah, yeah. So definitely don't, don't, don't go outside and say, well, Phil told me she do that. No, 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 no. No, you keep it, keep it up, keep it modest. <laughs> but, yeah, but, yeah, as much as you can. That will help to set your circadian rhythm. And then if you can do it again at solar noon, which is usually some place between 12 or 2 o'clock, um, depending on where you live, that will again help it. If you can do it around sunset, that can help. So we tell people, try to get outside three times a day, uh, sunrise, solar noon, sunset. And th- that light helps to stimulate your circadian rhythm, which is a fancy way of saying your body's uh, biological uh, internal clock, knowing what time of day it is. And you'll notice you'll sleep better at night. And then we also have the opposite at night. During the nighttime, we try to close the blinds. We use blackout curtains to make sure our room is pitch black, gets your hand from your face. This is a hard one. Um, we try to turn off technology like our cell phones and the TV two hours before bed. And instead, we read some books underneath a, a red light. It's basically a, the light you would use for a reptile. So that helps us to get back to sleep at night. And if you do these things, man, you will see that your sleep just improves so much. Your health feels better. Your energy feels better. Uh, it's it's wonderful. We found that along with all the other things like uh, intermittent fasting, like the food part, um, exercising a little bit in the morning, getting active, getting those walks and everything. It helps so much for our health and our sleep every night. But uh, it, it's been a blast to actually learn about those things and improve them because it's just it's wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I've seen the. I've actually got some of these. Um, I'll show you. Obviously, you can't see on the pod uh, on the podcast if you're listening, but I've got some of these, which are these are these are blue light blockers. blockers yeah, uh-huh. and uh, it's effectively it's almost a bit like when you turn the uh, setting on on your your phone, basically that yeah. night mode where it kind of goes to that warm tone of color. Yeah, uh, I've been using those. They're they're pretty good actually. But the yeah, the importance of sleep is really um, that's come up quite a bit actually in some of the other episodes and how important it is to get a good night's sleep and you know the strategies you can implement to do that so 
I've also seen that circadian rhythms can really influence things like jet lag as well. So you can use that to your advantage to counter jet lag and make sure, you know, when you're when you're coming back, I think it's from west. I think it's from west to east, it's worse than it is from east to west, but I think well maybe it depends on your original destination, but um or your home sort of area. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. Okay, so just going back to the sort of training method you're implementing there if i'm just looking to get started with this what would you recommend as a as a good place to start into incorporating these big six movements into our training and then obviously some of the other elements you talked about as well i i would definitely start with the the beginner versions of those movements like let's say you're, you're a beginner i'd start with the beginner versions which would be like the lean forward push-up um which is the beginning version of the planch push-up then there's the pike push-up for the handstand push-up. There is the um, chin-up or mixed grip chin-up for the one-arm chin progression. And if there's someone who can't do a chin-up, then we use the assisted chin-up. And then we have a movement called a bodyweight arc row for the front lever rows. And then we combine that with assisted single leg squats for most people or some sort of back squat, whatever they have available. It depends on if they have a gym or not. And a Nordic leg curl progression. And that gets people off on the start towards the rest of the big six movements that come later afterwards. But if you have those basic foundational movements, then you are going to be able to progress further. Brilliant. So squat for the legs, you've got planche push-up for, a, what's that, chest and shoulders area maybe? Yeah, like a horizontal push almost. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then you've got your uh-huh. arm, chin up would be, or yeah. the regressions are more for the uh, pulling movement and the same with uh-huh. the arc rows. Oh uh-huh, yep, and then your handstand push up again. Your pushing movement. So you got pushing like in two planes, maybe, and then pulling in a couple of planes as well. Is that a fair assessment? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, two um vertical push, vertical pull, horizontal push, horizontal pull, and then we have squat, squat and leg curl. Very nice. So if you uh, if you're on a normal training split of um, chest, legs, and things like that, now you can adapt it. So you can say, I'm training, I'm training the horizontal today. That'd be that's an interesting launch. I'm training training planes today. <laughs> it, it fits into everything, really. Like, yeah, like you're, if, you, if you're doing something like, you no know, bodybuilding, you're just like, I want to actually be able to, like, you know, also do some cool calisthenics work. You can fit it in just so that you have, if you have a, like I said, a chest a day, a chest and shoulders day, where you just put the planes, push your work in that day, and bam, you're good to go. Amazing. Okay. So, Phil, if people want to find out a little bit more about this big six and how you train and some of the methodologies you use, where can someone go to find out a bit more information? So they could check out our Instagram, which uh, our handle is the uh, underscore mindful underscore mover. Um, they all, we also have a YouTube, which is all, if you look up mindful mover. You'll find all of our videos on there. Um, I think uh, my wife, she, she's the one, she's the brains behind all this. <laughs> so I think she recently made a TikTok, which she's sharing videos too um, from over there. And then if you want, they can send us the email, which is, mail at mindfulmover.com you can contact us and we'll respond back right there i will put those in the description of the podcast so everyone can have a look and find out more about this uh this sort of style of training and do you offer coaching as well is that something you absolutely that's that's our whole thing we do online coaching so we help people who really want to make that wide range of gains make all the gains possible but in the limited time. Phil, frame. thank you so much for your time. This has actually been such a such an insightful chat, and you know, it's I think there's a lot of takeaways from this, especially if you're low on time, you don't have much 
you know, much uh, access to a gym or something like that. Or even, you know, you don't really, it sounds like you don't really need access to a gym for this. You just need access to a, would you say, a, like a pull-up bar and, and that's about it really. Or a partner that's heavy enough to, to give you some uh, resistance. Absolutely. absolutely. If you, yeah, if you have a pull-up bar, you're doing great. If you have a pull-up bar and some rings, ooh, now you're fancy. A pull-up bar, some uh, rings, and maybe like a little bit of weight for the squats. And at that point, you can just go ahead and you don't have to even go to the gym. You're, you're good to go. Yeah, so <laughs> not only are we saving time, we're saving money as well. Look at that. Yes, absolutely. Phil, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you.